and gentlemen, this is an important message from the New York City Police Department. If you see a suspicious package or activity on the platform or train, do not keep it to yourself. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Hey everyone, I'm Amadal Yakbar and this is M-Train, a podcast miniseries from See Something, Say Something and Brick Radio. This week, we're going to be talking about death in New York City and how gentrification and COVID-19 have complicated burials in the city. So for this episode, we're going to talk to Lena Afridi, who's going to help us understand how complicated it is to bury a loved one. And then we called up Imam Khalid Latif to get an update on how COVID-19 has complicated Muslim burial practices. Also... Maybe I should say Ramadan Mubarak. This episode wasn't planned to be a Ramadan episode, but because of delays due to COVID-19, it's releasing during the month. But first, I want to introduce you to the M-Train production team. We're going to share with you our own personal experiences with death in Muslim communities and why we're interested in such a morbid topic. Hi, my name is Shireen Barghi, and I'm a senior producer at Brick TV, and I'm uh, the co-producer of M-Train. Hi, everyone. My name is Mira Al-Rahim, and I edit the M-Train podcast, as well as sound design and score. So I convened you two here because when Shireen and I were first pitching the series, one of our first ideas was to talk about death and dying in New York as a Muslim. For some reason, Shireen and I um, both are kind of very obsessed with death. Does that sound right, Shireen, to you? Absolutely. I remember the first time um, we got together, I think it was like July 2019. Um, We were trying to, you know, we were just like bouncing off ideas for segments. And one of the first ideas was death. We were really vibing, I thought. Like somehow we just (laughs) vibed about death. We just were like, we could do this, we could do that. Um, And we're now in a very wild time in in American history where we're all quarantined. All three of us are at our homes. Where are you guys all right now? I'm in Michigan. I'm in Ellicott City, Maryland. I am in uh, Brooklyn, New York with my roommate and my partner. And we are just hunkered down here, you know, trying to trying to stay sane as we as we go through this incredibly weird moment. So weird. And like, absolutely. Death is everywhere. It feels like, unfortunately, it's such a strange moment in in my life, at least, where I've never felt like, you know, you log on Facebook and, you know, four or five, six people, you know, have personally lost somebody to COVID. Um, It just feels very surreal. I was born in Iran in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war, which lasted like about eight years. And I grew up at a time where images of death and dying were a very constant and prominent part of everyone's like daily life, art and culture, and even language. All the names of the streets were like martyr this, martyr that, you know. And I feel like now it's just been just on social media and all the news and the notifications that you get about people dying. It just remembers like it's like a, this, this constant flashback to that time, you know, yeah, that's something. And Iran is being hit especially hard as well, as I understand. Yeah, yeah. It's like one of those countries that was pretty badly hit by this. Um, Yeah. How are you holding up with COVID, Mira? 
you know, I, I'm, I'm doing as well as I can be doing over here. And I feel really grateful for what I do have, um, especially in, in light of seeing how much suffering has, has come about in, in the last three weeks as a result of all the layoffs and people's, you know, lack of access to healthcare. I have a lot of family in the Middle East right now in Lebanon. So it's been, it's been a little bit scary. Um, not for me in New York City, but scary in terms of my, you know, concern for my family members abroad. I just, I just can't, I don't, I don't know how they could deal. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of bated breath, basically. I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. One of the words I heard used to describe this feeling is anticipatory grief, which I think mm-hmm. something, at least in America as a society, we have not experienced in my generation. And in fact, I think one of the things that um, defined me Um, in my early 20s was I experienced like the grief of losing a parent earlier than many of my other peers. And I know the the rest of us, we've all talked outside of the context of being on air about losing um, a parent um, beforehand and like sort of Muslim, you know, experiences of death. Um, And it's like kind of the core of why we wanted to have this conversation is because we've all kind of been, you know, affected by that. So I wanted to, you know, ask each of you a little bit um, about that. So for me, you know, uh, I grew up in a household where like um, all my grandparents passed away pretty young besides my grandmother who died when I was 18. Like I didn't know any of my grandparents. So it was like a household in which like remembering your parents and losing your parents was a was an incredibly big deal. Mm. Um, So it was like kind of a weird sort of thing that happened to me too that like my grandmother died of cancer and then my mother was diagnosed also with cancer um when I was about 14 and she was um you know beat cancer the first time around and we got like you know um some some years together but then when I was in college when I was 19 she got diagnosed with um lymphoma and uh you know she had like a two-year battle with it and in fact um, she was on a ventilator for <laughs> about four oh, months God. in the beginning, which is what why this like COVID stuff is really so, uh, it's so striking to me when people are like, you know, we need more ventilators. I don't think people understand how like terrible it is to have a family member on a ventilator. It's not a good, it's like a really terrible situation. Um, and thankfully she actually got off the ventilator and like had like, a, a, you know, like two years, you know, where she was, we like had still a lot of fun during those two years, even though she was ill. Um, and then, you know, in, in, in 2009, she, she passed away at like the age of 58. I was 21. And so like, you know, I would say in many ways that started my career as a writer. Cause I like, um, just was writing a lot during that time. And I just like, I was thinking a lot about losing someone and it was hard to relate to other, other people my age. Mm. Um, cause it is, it is a young age to lose somebody, although, you know, not as young as others. Um, and part of the reason I, I, I think it's interesting on like a sociological level beyond the like personal stuff that I'm, you know, sharing here and why I think it's like important to share in this context is um, my parents were, uh, you know, kind of like have been leaders in our local community. And my mom was always like super big about finding spaces to bury Muslims because in like the 90s and 2000s, uh, there wasn't really a clear space to bury people. They were buried in like a haphazard way. And everyone was like, the community should be buried together. Maybe a couple of years before, prior to um, my mom's passing, uh, she and my father and a lot of other people in the community um, actually did find a plot of land. And there is now a place in which the like Muslims of mid-Michigan in our area are now mostly buried. 
So like my mom was one of the first few people buried there. And now it's like sort of becoming a place where like I see other people who are in my community are now being buried there. Wow. Um, and it's an interesting community building thing. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode, because I was like, that was really hard for us in this tiny little city where like you can buy a house for literally like $5,000 because land is so cheap. It was still very challenging for us to find a place to bury our community um, and the infrastructure building required like literally over a decade of work. So I wanted to ask some questions about New York too. Um, Shireen, I know you have like a very different experience of this because you're an immigrant um, and you have a lot of family back home. I do as well, of course, but like you're in kind of a different situation. Tell me a little bit about like your experience with uh, losing one of your parents. Um, yeah, so um, I lost my father when I was 25, and it was two years after I had moved to New York from to Iran. You know, like my father wasn't sick. He always had problems with his heart, um, but his death came out of nowhere. And I still remember I was like at a coffee shop um, on Barry, and um, I remember I just like kept calling my parents and they wouldn't pick up. Finally. Um, my brother called me and he was he told me that my father had had a heart attack. He was one of my, honestly, one of my closest friends. And when he passed away, like when the shock of that, I think it never left me. And it's been like eight years now. And the shock is still with me. It's almost like it's like sunk under my pores and it's just become a part of me and it's like what you just mentioned about anticipatory grief I feel like that that's why every time like I call my mom and she doesn't pick up you know like or if, if my brother calls like you know like I don't know like butt dials me and it's like in the middle of the night and I get a missed call from him from him at like 3 a.m. I'm like holy like who died you know and that was just one part of it the next part was like physically getting myself from New York City to Iran because they had they they knew how close I was with my father and my brother lives in London so they actually waited for me and my brother to get ourselves to Iran to bury him the customs we have in Iran um like around burial and is, is just so cathartic and it's like this almost like this collective cathartic moment and it's just so traumatizing I always liken it to Burning Man like I've never been to Burning Man but but like you know just from the pictures it looks a lot like Iranian burial rituals you know it's like very I don't know wow like there's a lot of screaming a lot of like I don't know like yeah a lot of like dirt everywhere and dust and yeah so yeah thank you for sharing that with us Shireen um Mira can you tell us your story about losing your father Sure. So my father passed away when I was 16 years old in a very sudden manner. And I was in boarding school at the time. And uh, he he died in Kurdistan and his body was flown to Beirut, where he was, you know, kind of, you know, residing at the time. And, um, you know, it was really just a matter of getting myself from from Switzerland to Beirut you know, as fast as possible. I mean, I always say my family is Muslim in nothing but name. We're a very unreligious family. We've never practiced. Um, I never really grew up, and I don't think my parents ever really grew up with ever a strong sense of religion in the household. But in Lebanon, if you die in the country, you have to be buried under the edicts of that religion. 
so my father being, you know, on paper, a Shia Muslim had to be buried within 24 hours of the death. And so that means things are happening really, really fast. And I remember feeling um, very aggravated that this man who really had nothing to do with this religion this whole life and 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 in my life like we never had anything to do with it suddenly his 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 death became such a religious affair and so that meant that i as a woman was not allowed into the burial or you know the 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 any any of the, any of the ceremonies um preceding the burial i mean we were just weren't allowed to go and you know being being 16 at the time and i think even if it happened now i'd just be just as pissed off i mean it, it felt like a little bit of a slap in the face um, to all the women in the family. And it is a very woman-dominated family. I mean, I have no brothers. I have two sisters, my mom. So, you know, he was the only man. And yeah, I just, I, I, I think I still hold a sense of resentment and bitterness to this day that I wasn't allowed to say goodbye um, in, in any sort of proper way. And I guess there's no really good way to say goodbye anyways, especially when someone dies so suddenly. But it really felt as if in that moment I was robbed of a very, something very precious. I felt as if I was robbed of something very precious and I, I could never get it back. Uh, right. all, all in the it's name. Closure. It's closure. And, and, and so, so yeah, I, I, I still feel, I still feel many types of different ways about it. Thank you both, Shireen and Mira, for sharing your stories. Um, I think... You know, grief is following all of us during this quarantine uh, time. But I really wanted to, like, ask some questions generally about what it's like to lose someone in New York City, which is an incredibly diverse immigrant Muslim um, community, and kind of kind of explore how those communities have found solutions to the problem of space and burial in a place that is affected by gentrification and so much more. So we spoke to Lena Afridi, who uh, does work in housing rights, uh, about her experience losing her father in the city. So I'm joined by Lena Afridi. She's the policy director for the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development. She's also a trained city planner and writer. Thanks for joining us, Lena. Thanks for having me. So I've asked you to join me here to tell us about something that's very challenging and many of us have gone through, including myself, which is losing a parent. Um, You lost your father um, and he was a New Yorker and was buried in New York. Um, Tell us a little bit about your father. What kind of person was he? So my dad was kind of a dandy. He uh, loved fancy clothes, but we had very little money. And so he we really couldn't afford anything like that. So this, the few things that he had, he took really good care of. He was kind of an old school Pakistani guy in a way that is not always represented. He was very feminine. You know, in a way mm-hmm. that I think a lot of my uncles aren't. And he just was kind of a man about town. Uh, he's a little bit of a hustler. He was involved in everything. If you ever asked me what he did for a living, I wouldn't be able to tell you because he did so many different things throughout the course of his life. Um, he died uh, January 12th, 2019, after a 10-year battle with vascular dementia, which is a disease that... Um, 
it's it's similar to Alzheimer's, but it's a very slow decline in mental and physical capacity. Um, and so you're watching the person that you love and care for start to fade away. Um, so my dad first moved to the U.S. in the early 80s. And New York was not the first city he moved to. Chicago is actually the first city he moved to. But when his brothers came over here, he decided, all right, they're they're here we're going to make sure that we stay together as a family. And when his brothers finished school, like a lot of other South Asian immigrants, they ended up in New York, specifically in Queens. He loved just being in just being in the city. He loved being on the train. He loved being on the bus. He just loved being out. And whenever he could, he would take us into Manhattan. He was always making deals with people. He was calling everyone his friend all the time, whether he knew uh-huh. them or not. And he would take us all over really all over Queens and all over Manhattan. Um, my mom, my aunt owned or ran a small business. She sold uh, shilarakami, so traditional Pakistani clothes, at a store in Jamaica. And so my dad would go over there to help her out with, with her inventory. And he would make a deal with the guy, the Bangladeshi guy at the electronics store down the street. And he, when he had to go and do that and nobody could watch us, he would just plop us down at this diner and just like leave us there with the guy at the counter who knew him. And so he trusted him. And so he built all these bonds with other immigrants, with other working people. And I saw that my entire life. He thought of himself as a much bigger personality than he actually was. But I think that being in New York kind of gave him that drive and that hustle and that feeling of camaraderie that came with being around other immigrants. It sounds like you had some time to prepare for losing him, but like what what was what happened when he when he when he passed? Like how did you figure out how to bury him? So the figuring out how to bury him and where to bury him was it was not as tough of a decision as it could have been only because the circumstances made it so that there weren't very many options. So it's not a secret to anyone that land in New York City is incredibly, incredibly expensive. It's New York's biggest asset. And what, when we think about land in New York, we th- we're thinking about real, real estate in the form of apartments and um, residential buildings and sometimes commercial buildings. But what we f- forget about is that you need land to bury somebody. You need land to bury your dead. And land in New York, like I was saying, like I've been saying, has been exorbitantly expensive, out of reach for many, many folks certainly out of reach for my family, but doubly so because it's very difficult to find a Muslim cemetery in New York City. You know, earlier in the episode, I talked a little bit about how there was basically this idea, like growing up, that we needed to build a Muslim cemetery in our community in Saginaw, which didn't like have the long history of um, Muslims as New York does, right? Like it's a, it's a maybe you know, it's still like a 60, 70 year history, but there are many instances, for instance, in our community where people um, who were maybe weren't necessarily active mosque goers in our community when they were, you know, getting ill and facing down the possibility of death, you know, like my father often washed the bodies and he would be like, people would come to me and they'd be like, I really want to be buried in a Muslim cemetery. That's it. I think that that's the case definitely for my dad. My dad was not a religious man. He would always say he was a Muslim, but he wasn't, he didn't pray very often, unlike my mom, who is very devout. But it's interesting that you pose this question, and I didn't even think of 
that as an answer because it doesn't feel like there's any other answer. It doesn't feel like there's any other option. It's like, of course, this is the only place for us to be when, when we die. Where else would we go? Um, but, but that's right. It's because, you know, on that day, you want to be surrounded by other Muslims. So you're part of the part of the like the inherent question here for me um, as a non-New Yorker is like, as you've mentioned, land is so expensive. So it's like, what did we do in New York? How did the Muslim community in New York figure this out? Like, what were their solutions? And you had some personal experience with it. Um, so let's let's go back to that. Tell me a little bit about like making those decisions, how you found out the information about, you know, the Muslim cemeteries and deciding where he would ultimately be his final resting place. Before I even get to that, I want people who are not in New York to understand what I mean when I say that it's really, really expensive here. So in Brooklyn, Greenwood Cemetery, which is one of the biggest cemeteries in the city, the starting price is $19,000. Okay, and then the cheapest plots in the city are $4,500. And it's so desirable that people auction off plots on eBay. Like, that's the level that we're at for everybody, regardless of whether you're a religious minority or not. That's just like what the market is for for burial. So I want to say that because it's not just Muslims who are facing challenges burying their dead in New York. It's anybody who is from here and is not rich. And, you know, like the people who make up the backbone of the city are the people who are the ones who are pushed out in death, like in life and in death. And in life, I work on this for my paid work on on housing justice, economic justice. This is what we think about. But in death also, your final final resting place, you know, I want to be buried alongside other Muslims. I also want to be buried alongside other New Yorkers. And that's something that I know that my dad was thinking about. And the first people who were buried in New York in my family were my grandparents. Um, and they were buried at, in Washington Memorial Cemetery, which is where my dad is buried, uh, out on Long Island in Suffolk County. It's about two hours from where I grew up. And we found it because my aunts and uncles had found it. And they found it because it was one of the few places that was doing ecumenical burials. So there were non-denominational, non-religious burials, and they offered this service to uh, religious minorities as well. So that's how we were connected to it was because this emerging network of Muslim immigrants had found this one place and the one place offered the services that we needed at a reasonable price. And so everybody we knew started going there and that's how we started going there. Um, And like, Everyone in my family who died in New York is buried in that cemetery. It doesn't matter where where you lived, everybody just ended up there. And another reason for that is just because there's nothing closer that's very available. Like I said, it's the cost, it's the supply is very short. People go as far as Pennsylvania from here, you know, like two and a half, three hours to find an affordable place to, to bury their loved ones. Um, so my dad's one year anniversary, the, the, the one year of his death was on January 12th. So I hadn't gone back since then. Cause there's no way I could have, it was, it's so far. There's just, and I don't know how to drive. Like I'm 33. I grew up in New York. I don't know how to drive. So I didn't go until January 12th 
And it's just so, it just took so long. And it takes, when you're grieving, grief already takes so much out of you. And to like make that trip when you're grieving, for all of us, it was so hard. And my mom herself said she was second guessing her herself and the decision to bury my dad where he was because it was so far. And it does feel like a disconnect. It feels like a disconnect from the life that we had together. Yeah. I mean, you are somebody who works on housing policy. Like, it feels like also like a metaphor for all the changing tides of gentrification and people being pushed out in New York as well. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think through that stuff? Well, I think about how the people, like I said this earlier, the people who are the backbone of the city are the people who can no longer afford to live here. So those are the folks who are service workers or the folks who are warehouse workers or people who are, you know, social workers, just everyday people who keep New York running are getting pushed further and further out to its edges. And I see the same thing that's happening in life. And I see the same thing happening in death. So the reason that I brought up earlier that this is not just a, this is very particular to Muslims because there's very little space for us just generally, but for anybody who is working class, anybody who is an immigrant, anybody who is trying to create their roots here, it is extremely challenging to find a place to bury your loved one. And it's extremely challenging to find a place and a way to be able to stay in the city. So I think that the experience of of death and burial is really a mirror of what happens in life. The people who make the city are the people who are not thought of as its core or like its most essential force, I guess. Right. And that contrast is coming into stark relief right now. Very obvious with coronavirus and the quarantine, all the people whose, you know, uh, labor was undervalued are now seen as essential workers. You know, in your work, like what what is, what is happening with coronavirus right now? How do you see it like shaping um, the way um, people live and die in New York? So right before I hopped on this call with you, I was working on a map um, looking at Department of Health data that they just released on um, coronavirus cases and where positive cases have been concentrated. And we've known this for a while, but Queens is the epicenter of coronavirus. And Elmhurst Hospital has been brought up many times, is the epicenter for coronavirus. And I want people to know that where Elmhurst Hospital is located is not the New York that you see on TV, right? This is where the people who have been made to be invisibilized live. This is like the one of the less cool parts of New York. This is where the people who make the city function and have always made the city function have lived. They're immigrants, they're people of color, they're poor people. And those are the people who are dying right now. Because doing the work that I've been doing. Um, I did this analysis looking at the service sector workforce in the neighborhoods that have highest the highest concentration of coronavirus cases and across the five boroughs of New York. The neighborhoods that have a higher um, concentration of service sector workers are in the neighborhoods where there are higher concentrations of positive cases. So these are the folks who are on the front lines every day. Those are your nurses aides, those are your, those are your home health aides, it's food service workers, it's delivery workers. Those are the people who are the reason that New York hasn't honestly completely, totally collapsed at this point. Um, and those are the people who are dying. And those are the people who we aren't talking about. 
And I do think about that in the context of burial and especially Muslim burial, because a lot of those people, a lot of those workers are Muslim workers. A lot of those workers are are Lyft drivers or they're restaurant workers or they work at the halal warehouse. You know, those are the people who are keeping New York running, but they're also keeping Muslim New York running, which does have its own, you know, class and race divisions. And I worry, I, I very much worry about what it's going to look like when we have to bury our dead um, for everyone, but especially for Muslims. I, I really, really worry about that. You know, in New York, the poor are being buried in in uh, in mass graves on Hart Island. So Hart Island is a an island off the coast of the Bronx. It was once a, a, a hospital for like typhoid um, and people were sort of quarantined and exiled there in times of public health panic in at the turn of the century. And eventually it was turned into what they what the city called a pauper's grave. And so inmates from Rikers Island were being were historically paid basically no money to um, dig these mass graves for people who couldn't afford to be buried. And sometimes that would be people who didn't have family. Sometimes it would be people who were homeless, but sometimes it was just people who could not afford to get buried anywhere else. All of it just sort of in this moment and the moment of death has been distilled down to this very real reality of, 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 of like everything that this country has been based on. I, I think about folks all over the country trying to find a place to bury their dead and find a place to, and when they don't find it, say, okay, look, let me try and let's try and create a little spot to rest our heads for our eternity. Um, and (laughs) not not a small thing at all, not a small thing, but, but also not a thing, but it's also a very human thing. And like, and and like, it's a right. And, and I do think that being able to bury your dead is a right. Um, and then, then w- when I think about people being able to stay buried and, and, and that right to remain buried, I think about black communities that were buried all across New York, New York City and their graves were had luxury hotels built on them or the fact that the burial sites of um, indigenous communities in Arizona are going to have the U.S.-Mexico border wall built on them. I think that we forget that that death is racialized, that death is structural, and that it's not just the immediate moment of death that is racialized and structural. It's not just the, how do I pay for my family member to be buried? It's the, it's the, like, con- the continuing fight to make sure that it's possible for them to stay buried or for that legacy to right, continue. Right, right. So before we go, it's obviously like a very confusing time for many of us in terms of how we're living. What's like some you know, sort of advice um, or kind of updates on the current situation that you can give for people who are living in New York, struggling with, you know, rent or, or living or maintaining, like what are some of the th- strategies that you guys are, are thinking about to help ease the burden? So you should find ways to organize with other tenants in your building. Uh, I know that it's difficult to do that in this moment. You have to still practice social distancing if you can figure out a way to create a tenants union, some folks have been able to do that. You should try to do that. You should look into tenants unions across the city. Ridgewood Tenants Union is a good one to check out. Crown Heights Tenant Union is also very active, and they have very good resources that you can look into. Also check out Right to Council and Housing Justice for All for resources. And maintain social distancing. And the last thing I will say is that if you have any donations 
of supplies that can go to frontline healthcare workers. Med Supply Drive, if you Google Med Supply Drive, they have volunteer pickups um, and will get that equipment to frontline healthcare workers. And that's a very concrete thing you can do to, to help out. Right. Thank you for joining us, Lena. Um, Lena wrote a piece called Death and Life in Great American Cities, which kind of follows her analysis on burying her father. We're going to link to that. It's in the new inquiry, and it'll be in the episode description. Thank you so much for joining us, and stay healthy. Thank you. You too. So before we get into the next segment, I wanted to give some context on recording this episode. When we were preparing for this episode, we called up loads of Muslim funeral homes and had short conversations with them over the phone or on email, but because they were so overwhelmed, we were unable to get any of them to sit down for a podcast interview. The New York Times, for instance, reported that Al Rayyan Funeral Home in Coney Island was doing 15 burials a day in early May, up from 20 to 30 a month, typically. Eventually, a few days before Ramadan, I called up Imam Khalid Latif of the Islamic Center of NYU. First, though, I just wanted to get some context from his perspective. How do Muslims in New York City typically get buried? Hospitals typically perform an autopsy on a body. Uh, but within the Islamic tradition, that would be problematic. And so exceptions are made for Muslims um, who pass away where autopsies are not performed on the bodies themselves. Um, the body is then released to a Muslim funeral home uh, where it is washed as per certain funeral rites. And that washing is done usually um, by someone who's a close family member of the same gender um, alongside someone who understands the ritual in and of itself. Uh, the body is then shrouded um, in a simple white sheet. Uh, it's then taken to uh, another space where a funeral prayer, um, which is essentially a prayer of forgiveness, uh, is performed for the deceased. Um, and it's then taken to a burial ground um, where it's buried uh, in the shroud. But in and of itself, it's a fairly simple process and something that every person who's Muslim that passes away um, has a right to have performed over them. Now, going back to Lena's story, you can see how challenging this could be in New York City. The cost of land is expensive, and with Muslim burials, you have to bury them as quick as possible, hopefully within 24 hours. Imam Khalid says, at minimum, the whole process costs $2,000 and can be even more. There are nonprofits like the Janaza Project that assist with the financial cost of burial, but it's still complicated and even more so by COVID-19. In New York, where we have the highest number of cases, um, as well as just an ever-increasing uh, death toll as a result of the virus, uh, it's put a lot of strain on numerous parts of kind of the process around um, dealing with somebody who has passed away. Uh, within the Muslim community in particular, there are a few different funeral homes. The challenge that you know you can start off with is one: uh, most houses of worship have had restrictions put on them by the government in regards to how many people can gather, but also if somebody who has contracted corona um, enters into the space, then where and how the space is required to shut down creates a problem 
uh, in particular around funerals, because many mosques have funeral uh, rite facilities built into the mosque, but they're not able to use them because if the body that has um, contracted corona comes into the space, they're then required to shut down for X amount of time. And so that limits now the number of spaces where these funerals can take place to begin with. Then when you look to see kind of throughout the boroughs um, where there are funeral services, uh, they are now really trying their best and fairly overwhelmed. So one question here is, if Muslims need to be buried as soon as possible within dying, how are funeral homes dealing with the increased volume? It's taking days at a time now for anything to kind of happen um, just because of the sheer quantity uh, of um, funerals that need to take place. These funeral homes just don't have the number of vehicles needed to go back and forth that much, let alone the manpower to do it. Then you have hospital um, morgues are just filled to the brim. Um, they have acquired like refrigerated trailers. What some Muslim funeral homes have started to do is also purchase refrigerated trailers uh, so that they can store more bodies, um, which enables them to perform that many more funerals. Uh, but it's really just kind of around the clock. Imam Khalid described to me how, because of restrictions, family members are unable to be there for the last moments of their loved ones or even gather for the funeral prayer. They'll go through a grieving process um, that's very unique in comparison to what somebody would typically have to go to. So all in all, uh, it's just a, a big challenge right now. In our community, what we've seen are, you know, some people will live stream um, the actual funeral prayer and the burial not so that people can join in ritualistically, because uh, the prayer has mechanics and parameters that necessitate you being present um, in the space and that lines in the prayer, the rows of prayer, are contiguous to one another. So you couldn't join in a prayer via live stream from a distance so they can still kind of be a part of it um, where it's appropriate and as much as they can um, adapt uh, but it, it it takes a big emotional toll on a lot of people, to, to say the least. So Imam Khalid's congregation has a lot of students. I asked him, how is your community dealing with the emotional toll of these deaths? And he said, basically, he's seeing less people ask, why is this happening? And more people asking, what can I do? I see it with Muslims throughout the boroughs, um, everything from you know food delivery services to supporting campaigns to provide funds to people who are in need, uh, to dropping off groceries to people's homes, to setting up programs where they're calling individuals that they know are elderly and live alone so that they're not just kind of on their own and doing things by themselves. But I think where there's just a certain unprecedented aspect to this, um, people are seeing uh, you know, where and how they need to step up and, and kind of come together. And I think um, within Islam, that just becomes a fundamental part of what the religion calls somebody to. Really where most people have been reaching out is saying, you know, how can we help? Like, what can we do to kind of um, make things, you know, better? It's been pretty remarkable to see. So we did this interview prior to Ramadan. Typically, the ICNYU holds free community dinners every night. 
So I asked Imam Khalid, how is the community planning to adapt to a Ramadan under quarantine? Essentially, since the onset of you know the pandemic and where there was a shift towards social distancing, we shifted a lot of our programs and services um, to be done virtually. Uh, and so our virtual programming has not relied purely on kind of religious and spiritual programming, which is there, but tapping into our larger community base. And altogether, we estimate we serve about 10,000 people. Um, and so we reached out to the community at large and we said, you know, who would like to present virtual programs? And we've been able to do anywhere from one to five or six programs a day, um, from yoga and meditation to story time for children to, you know, cooking classes. And we've seen people respond really well to that and we'll kind of maintain with it. So the adaption to remote community events was already happening well before Ramadan, But the month is also a time where the IC does a lot of fundraising, both to support their own work and also to support the community. This year, the community needs are especially pressing. Uh, Almost immediately, we launched a campaign to raise funds for those who were financially impacted by the coronavirus. Um, And, you know, in a good week, week and a half, we raised about $530,000 and were able to provide um, micro grants of anywhere from 250 to a thousand dollars to about I think 670 homes in the country um, and almost about 2,400 individuals. And immediately after we launched the campaign to support uh, funeral homes in New York City um, that were performing Janaza prayers, uh, funeral services for Muslims. Um, in a day and a half, we raised about 200 thousand dollars. Um, to su- help support, you know, some of what they had going on. Um, and in Ramadan, you know, we're hoping to also create the opportunity for people to still put into practice um, their faith in a very lived way and to not see kind of their Ramadan experience as something that's only self-serving, but to facilitate a means through which they can still continue to give to one another um, and really help others, right? And I think where governmental apparatus, you know, doesn't kind of fulfill responsibility, um, you know, we have to step up and do what we can to make sure, you know, people are able to heal from a lot of this, and not just in the immediate, but in the long term. I mean, what role do we play in really helping to ensure that um, those things uh, happen with as as much ease as, as possible for those who are in need? So as of writing, the campaign to support funeral costs has closed, but there is a Ramadan emergency fund to support those affected financially by COVID-19, Muslim or not. It's still open through the month of Ramadan. It's raised over $500,000, and we'll put a link in the description in case you want to donate. We thank Imam Khalid for taking the time to speak with us. Before we go, I wanted to take a moment to also speak about another cause that's important to me. This past March, our friend Lina Anver died after almost a year and a half of battling leukemia. She was a fellow podcast producer, a loyal supporter of the show, and a dear partner and friend to my wife Salima and myself. We were able to visit her a few times in the hospital, and she always kept an incredibly positive attitude throughout 
I encourage you to send prayers for her and for her parents and her brother and her cousins. But also part of Lina's struggle was that she was unable to find a bone marrow donor in the National Bone Marrow Registry as there are not enough desis or frankly minority groups in general in the registry. My own mother also could not find a match for her lymphoma when she was trying to get a bone marrow transplant. So this is incredibly personal for me and I encourage all of my listeners to register with Be The Match. They'll send you a swab kit and you can send it right back and you'll be registered. And hopefully by diversifying the registry, we'll be able to help save people like Lina and my mother. I'm gonna post that link in the episode description. Um, Please uh, give it a shot if you can. And this Ramadan, we are thinking of Lina, praying for her and her family. We encourage you to do the same. That was an intense episode. Thank you for joining us. We apologize for any delays due to COVID-19. Our last episode of M-Train will be coming soon. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted and produced by me, Amadal Yakbar, and Shireen Barakhi. It is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham and Sasha Mathias. Follow me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. Follow See Something Say Something on Twitter and Facebook at See Something. And follow Brick on Twitter at BrickTV. This episode featured music composed by Mira Al-Rahim and from Freesound. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. See Something Say Something is on Patreon. Find us on patreon.com slash and support us for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks to our patrons Stacey Marie Ishmael, Ted Delphos, Melis T, Mo D, Remy Carroll, and Mustafa Nusrati for supporting the show. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thanks for listening. Mr. Dumbo, you know me.